it's been one of those mornings. It's been one of those mornings. Um, the good thing is, and it, I even, I even like, there's kind of something wrong if things aren't kind of going a little nutty, a little haywire. I'd be weary of just things are just too calm and too serene because that's not the world we live in. And, um, you know, even with the start of the service, you know, it's like, got this, the slide's not working, this and that. But uh, praise God that we serve, we serve the true and living God that he's not bound by electrical equipment or anything like that. I mean, honestly, we don't, we don't need those slides. Um, there, once upon a time, back in the ancient days in the Old Testament, um, you were very privileged to even have a scroll that was a scripture. And so many people would get the word of God uh, audibly and it'd be passed down from generation to generation in stories. And so, again, it kind of points to the fact of, you know, hearing God's word, understanding God's word, hiding God's word in your heart, because, you know, what's the situation like when we don't have this building, we don't have electricity, we don't have slides, we don't have this, we don't have that. You see even that monitor is going cuckoo. Um, you know, does that mean that we stop praising the true and living God? We stop being obedient? You know, obviously not. You know, we continue on. We continue to seek him. We continue to uh, remain steadfast. And as uh, this message is going to point out, be earnest in our prayers for one another to the Lord. Uh, yeah. Amen. And it's also a monkey wrench of the enemy. Things not going the way we think, you know, um, the enemy would love nothing more than to because for some people that that'll do it. <laughs> the slides aren't working. The guitar, it was great. But I'm saying if the guitar was off, if the singing was off out of tune to what people think, you know, they'd be like, well, I'm not coming back. I don't want to worship the Lord. I don't want to be here. But um, this is not a performance. This is not a production. You know, we are here to worship and praise the true and living God. Amen. Amen. <sighs> Getting off into Acts chapter 12. I've been tripping out this whole week. Um, the more I study the word of God, I'm so convinced that it's the most original, captivating drama of all time. Hands down. It's got everything in it that the entertainment industry or the, you know, Hollywood makes billions off of. There's a hero. There's a villain. All the ups and downs, the twists and the turns and a perfect ending. That's all encompassed in the word of God. Today, again, like I said before, we find ourselves starting off in Acts chapter 12. Up to this point, the early church has been on a streak of success. I mean, everything has been going their way. Uh, they've ex been experiencing one successful conversion after another. And then we got to last week, the end of Acts chapter 11, where we witnessed a worldwide famine that affected all the people of the known world at that time. And we saw how the church in Antioch was ready and willing to be used to be a blessing to those in need. But here in Acts chapter 12, the ugly opposition inspired by Satan and his followers, the fallen angels, again raise their nasty heads. And we see this in the persecution and the killing of James and the imprisonment of Peter. There are several main points that I'd like us to focus on this morning. And the first is, some will do anything. I stress that. Some will do anything for the approval of others. Acceptance from the crowd for some is more important than doing the right thing. And I'm sure you have examples in your life that you've seen, maybe You've uh, been in that place yourself. I know when, you know, when uh, young people are, are at that in-between age when they're in junior high, right? It's like they're too old to be little kids, 
but they're too young to be adults. And they're in. And I work. I worked in junior highs on uh, the east side of San Jose for like um, you know twelve years. And so you know I had the privilege of meeting all kind of you know just crazy little youngsters, knuckleheads. You know what I'm saying all through Pala when Pala was still Pala, Ocala, uh, JW Fair, all those schools out there. But uh, it's just interesting to see how they act and their mannerisms and what they do and you know acceptance of the crowd acceptance of their peers is so important and when you're that oddball when you're that kid who doesn't get picked when you're that kid who doesn't have a Sadie Hawkins day dance when you're that kid who's you know just you're different from the others you know if you're looking to find your identity in that it can be I mean, it can be it can be a killer, especially nowadays. I have I have it's been seven years since I've been working, uh, you know, in the East Side Union School District, and I can only imagine with all the things because you know we got stuff now where people are dying over selfies. You know, I gotta get the best selfie, and they're falling to their death. You know, trying to get a picture of themselves so they can put on Instagram or whatever all the other little you know um, social media outlets that there are today. So. It's just crazy when you think about it, the acceptance of the crowd and how some will go to extreme lengths. The interesting thing about it is, is many times it's people that do not have Christ as their anchor and as their savior that we find going to these extreme bounds for acceptance. Again, it's that void in one's heart that only Jesus Christ can fill. And when we haven't allowed him to fill that void, you best believe that we're going to find any little thing to try to fill that void and and acceptance of the crowd and of our peers is one of them. We will see that the death of James was committed for nothing more than a political stunt. Again, acceptance of the crowd. The second main point that I'd like us to focus on this morning is being a Christian doesn't promise that persecution won't come your way. And this is a this is a big one because many times we come to faith in Christ and we have this perception that I'm a Christian now, I've accepted Jesus Christ as my savior. Things are just going to I mean they're just going to work out. It's just going to be grand. I'm going to be blessed upon blessed upon blessed. Yeah, you may be blessed. Again, it's What is our true understanding of the word blessing and how do we perceive what a blessing is? See, many times we live in this Western culture that's so influenced by materialism and monetary things and and manipulated by material things that we associate many times a blessing as something that comes in the form of something physical and tangible that I can touch. But like I, I touched on or we touched on last week, you can actually prosper in the midst of your trials you know it just has to deter we have to figure out in our minds what do we determine what does the bible say a blessing is and a blessing can manifest itself in material things but that's not the primary way that blessings present themselves the blessing the truest blessing is having your sins and my sins forgiven by the blood of jesus christ that in of itself is enough That's it. That's enough. And until we get to that point where we truly in our heart of hearts come to that point and rest upon Jesus, your blood is enough. Your sacrifice for me is enough. We're going to struggle as Christians. I'm just going to keep it real. I don't like to candy coat things from the pulpit. I like to tell it like it is because that's how the Lord tells me. Lovingly breaking me, showing me you're wrong. (laughs) I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just sharing with you what the Lord is showing me. And that's the reality. Jesus has to be enough because, again, we can end up being Christians that are doing the same thing as the world and looking for every other thing to fill the void. And, you know, and it's like you already have it. I already have it. Why are we searching for all this other stuff that's going to perish? It's going to perish. You know, as nice a car as you get brand new, it depreciates, what, 25 percent once you drive it off the lot. I mean, that's just the nature of the world we live in with the things of this world. So it's okay to like it. Like I, like I said, don't love it. Don't love things. Love God. Love people. Like things. You can like things a lot. Don't like things a lot to the point where you start to begin to, you know, lust over them and you're desiring to, li- uh, to, to love them. 
But again, this whole idea of being a Christian doesn't promise us we're not going to go without persecution, but we are going to have our soul saved. And that's the grand, great thing to know that that's what we have to look forward to. On the contrary, <laughs> being a Christian actually promises that you're going to face opposition. So it's like, yeah, sign up because <laughs> it's going down. <clears throat> you're going to be thrown in a trial. What is it? How is the saying go? You're either going into a trial or coming out of a trial. That's the nature of the Christian life. That's the cycle that we go through. Not saying that you can't have the Lord's peace in that. Yes, you can. And that's the that's the glorious thing of God and being close to him and having this tight-knit relationship with him is that you can go through the fiery trials of life, but you can have a peace beyond all understanding. And isn't that what everybody really is searching for at the end of, you know, when we boil it down to what is what is really going on? The world is searching for peace. They're searching for the peace of God. They don't even realize they're searching for it. You can't find it in a Maserati. You can't find it in, you know, the the the, the finest supermodel out there. You can't find it in a billion dollars. I mean, I've, I've, I've read stories this week of the billionaires that are trying to, they're paying for blood transfusions from uh, from people that are 16 or 25 years old because they believe they're going to, they're going to change the aging process. You know, this is ridiculous, but this is the world we live in because what? They're afraid to die. Why? Because they realize that their time is limited and they have not found the true and living God. And so there's that void in their hearts. And so they're living for now. Again, don't let this life be your best life ever. They, people like to say that hashtag, hashtag best life ever. Come on now, quit it. Stop. Because if this is your best life ever, you're going to go to hell when it's all said and done because you don't have the eternal security of Christ. This is not my best life ever. Let me tell you. You know, but I'm not going to lie. I try. I try to make it as good as it can be. But the Lord shows me this is not you're not living for this world. You're a pilgrim. You're visiting. And as we pass through, let's bring along as many people we can for the Lord. Amen. Amen. All right. The third main point I'd like us to focus on this morning is and this can be debatable if this is more important than the other others, but it is very, very point, important. And my wife touched on it uh, as she read the scriptures. The earnest prayers of the church is the only effective way to pray. The earnest prayers, not just praying, because, you know, throw it out there, popcorn prayers, this and that. And, and you know, the bottom line is God knows your heart, right? I'm not going to sit here and say, if you're on your knees for an hour every day, that, you know, that's more important than you just being in your car and you speaking to the Lord because it's a heart condition. The last thing we want to do is make things formulaic because it's not a formula. Don't think you're going to come with a contrived way of coming to God and all of a sudden he's like a genie in a bottle and you do this and you do A and you do B and you do C and all of a sudden D is going to pop out and you're going to get what you want. It's not how it works, right? Again, it's a heart condition. But nonetheless, the earnest prayers of the church mm -hmm is the only effective way to pray. We will learn what it means to pray earnestly and why this is so effective and not only effective, but important, right? Our prayer life is vital. I mean, it is, that's, that's all you have. <laughs> that's all you have. If you don't have an effective prayer life, you can begin today. You're gonna learn what you need to do to have an effective, earnest prayer life. And I guarantee you, it's going to change the trajectory of your walk with the Lord from this day forward. But you have to be sold out and willing to submit to the Lord and do what the Lord calls you to do. The good thing is, He gives you the ability, the strength, the energy, all that to do it. The Holy Spirit within you, you know? It's, it's all Him. It's just about submission. And then after submission, everything just works out. It's so cool. You know, it's so cool. All right, let's go ahead and look at Acts chapter 12, verse 1. We'll start here. And it says, About that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. So already, as I just read that one verse, there's just stuff that already pops off the page. It's this man, he laid violent hands. So it's it's getting it's getting crazy. <laughs> you know, violence is a it, it's a it's an intense thing. And, and this man laid violent hands, uh, so to speak. This is what the, the text says. We'll go ahead and break it down and see what actually is going on here. So let's go back to who this individual is. Who is this character? This is Herod. And he was uh, Herod Agrippa the first. This was 
the grandson of Herod the Great, who ruled in the days of Jesus's birth. You can read about that account in Matthew chapter two, verses one through sixteen. It has a whole breakdown of who this this Herod was and you know what he was doing. All right, remember he had sent out a decree, uh, just like how Pharaoh was, because you know again, if you are someone who is a commander in chief and you are in charge and you are running a militant army and you're trying to run the world, what is the best way to deflate any kind of opposition? Who do you think you're going to try to kill? Who did, who did Herod want to kill and who did Pharaoh want to kill? They made a decree that they were going to kill a certain sex. Well, who, who was it? Male, male babies, male, ba- male, Jewish male babies, you're all going to die. Because if I kill you guys all off like a bunch of roaches, there's no infestation. I have no threat. What are the women going to do? I'm going to I'm going to plunder and excuse my language, but I'm going to plunder and rape and I'm going to impregnate. And I'm you know, be, but, you know, this is the reality of what goes on. You look at human history and see along the line how things have transpired that's what civilizations do to uh have power and to keep power and so it was no different here with this man here herod he was in the same process of doing the same thing herod agrippa the first was also the nephew of herod antipas see they all they kept this name it was like a staple that they could be recognized by the herods and they were they were, shall I say, they were hideous human beings. They did very vile, despicable things that you would not want your little children to grow up doing. This Herod, Antipas I'm speaking of, he had a role in the trial of Jesus. And you can read about that on your own time in Luke chapter 23, verses 7 through 12. But as I as I was praying and studying this week and I couldn't help but but look at this one verse and just understanding kind of the backdrop of who the Herods were, right? It was a trip when I looked at this family line because there were multiple generations of haters of God. Multiple generations. It went one, two, three, four. In a way, this speaks to what the Bible calls generational curses, and, and how generational curses come about and continue. Because none of these men, none of these Herods here, decided to break the chain of wickedness in their family. That wickedness simply continued. It was passed on from one generation to the next. It's like you look at racism. It's a classic example. Though every baby, as beautiful as they are, comes out a bundle of sin, or the capacity to be sinful because of their nature, they are not inherently inherently biased or racist or or bigot or a bigot at all. Those things are ingrained in them from whoever is the parents or the guardians of those young children. You see, nobody is born a racist, but that racism gets passed down from this generation that lived a certain way. And if they chose not to break the chain of racism, they're going to pass on that same train of thought. And now it rests upon this young individual to either go that same way and be a racist themselves or stop and say, I'm not going to subscribe to that train of thought and that way of thinking, and I'm going to live a different way. This is the same thing here with the Herods and these generational curses. What is the application for us today in this? Today, what you and I will decide Whatever we do, however we live, we will impart and pave the way for our loved ones for, of tomorrow, whatever it is. So if you live as a Christian today, as a true follower of Christ, you are setting up the next generation of your family, of your lineage to have the opportunity to follow in that, to follow in Christ. And it's very interesting. The Old Testament talks about what a righteous man is. And a righteous man is someone who gives and has, uh, you know, an inheritance for their children. And this is not simply monetarily speaking, but spiritually speaking. What this man, so if I'm the first generation of my family, which I am, the Aperto Berries, there's no one else with that. I need, if I'm going to be a righteous man, I need to pass on the material stuff is what it is. It's not a big deal. You should set aside something for your children. But more importantly, it's the spiritual 
applications that you pass down to your children. So if I'm a righteous man, I not only pass it down to my children, but my my grandchildren. See, it goes two generations deep. And if you don't do that, you're not considered a righteous man. That's what the Old Testament says. And I believe that the Old Testament is just as valid as the new. And so you see, because it's God is long term thinking. He's not just for this short time period. And, 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 and this is where I'm not getting off a topic, but this is where we get the whole idea of be fruitful and, 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 and multiply the earth. Right. You're supposed to multiply the earth of other Christians that are like minded, that seek Jesus Christ as their savior, that submit willingly to him. Right. See, the breakdown is we stop doing that. And maybe you're barren and you can't have children, but you can still disciple people. You can still disciple young and, and, and people of old alike to be uh, fruitful. You know, there's there. I've heard of many stories of, of people that were old in their age. I think there was a Samaritan's Purse one somewhere, you know, somewhere in, you know, South America, or whatever. This lady couldn't have children, but, you know, she ended up sharing the word of God and sharing Christ with like, man, I'm talking about a whole tribe of children. And then she has all these children and, you know, she's being fruitful and she's multiplying. See, so we can't have this skewed perception and this narrow way of thinking that it's only this one kind of way. Um, there's many ways that this can be done, but this is so important for us to remember and understand today. The text goes on to say here in this first verse that he laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Now, because of his position and the way things work in power and control with men, uh, typically because men are the ones that are in control. No doubt this was done because of political uh, popularity. This was, this was politically popular for Herod to make this move, to go ahead and have James killed. It pleased his citizens who didn't like Christians. If you think about it, you look at our landscape today, you look at the political landscape today, of our country and of other countries. Even today in our own society, many politicians are ready to persecute Christians if it will make them more politically popular. They'll be quick to say no. <laughs> you know, why, why, why did we take down all these things from the courthouses? Why do we, you know, I don't even know why they say, you know, uh, hold up your hand and swear. By the Bible, when you know they're taking down stuff that that the that our forefathers of this country believed in, it's very counterproductive. It doesn't work, and again, you know that's a satanic act because it's confusing. Anything that's confusing is satanic. Call it like it is, <laughs> it's satanic. You know, it, it is because God is crystal clear, and Satan is the author of lies and confusion, and he will do nothing but try to confuse even the elect if they're. Uh, you know, not rooted in the word of God. What is the application for us today when it comes to this? Oh, well, I want to share this too. I'm sorry. This whole idea of, of people doing whatever they can for political popularity. The crazy thing about this is, do these people even realize that they're actually incurring the wrath of God upon them? for the things that they're doing. Um, you take Adolf Hitler, for example, trying to exterminate a whole race of people. He thought he was doing the right thing, but did this man really understand what he was incurring upon himself, the wrath of God, the judgment of God, because he was going to God's chosen people and trying to exterminate them? It's crazy. The application for us today is when we choose to live a lifestyle of disobedience towards God, we become in a position that we're willing to, to do just about anything. We have we have no sensor. Our hearts become so hard and callous that there is just, there's no barometer for morality at all. And that's when what the Bible says, there's all kind of debauchery. And, you know, you read the book of Romans and it talks about from a debased mind, man did things that were unspeakable and unthinkable with other men. And women did the same. They, 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 they traded away what was true and right in and uh, uh, of their own lives for a lie because they have become so debased because they chose to love the dark instead of the light. The saying is true. Sin knows no bounds. If you've ever been bound by sin, and I can stand here as a testament saying there was a, there was a season in my life where I was bound by sin. 
the sensationable appetite to fulfill that desire in my wicked heart would stop at nothing. I would do anything. And you look at people who are strung out, who are addicts of whatever. You can be addicts of food. Well, let's take this light, fluffy example. An addict of food. You'll do anything for Betty Crocker. And some eggs and some butter. Not that fake stuff. I'm talking about a block of butter that you freeze. My wife loves to freeze butter. And you'll bake and bake. And, and I'm not saying baking's a bad thing. Baking's a bad thing. Baking's a bad, but Michelle doesn't eat every single thing she bakes. She's a great baker. Okay. But you know, but when you're baking and you're eating every single little thing that goes in that oven and pops out, that's an addiction. That's a stronghold. Sin knows no bound. You don't know when to stop with the eggs and the butter and the chips and the chocolate chips and the all, you know. Man, we were at, where were we yesterday? We were at Omega's and man, they had some breakfast that this is not, that's not a breakfast, that's a dessert. I mean, they had all these toffee chips all over these pancakes and whipped cream everywhere. I was like, man, my kid saw that. He would lose his mind. That's an instant diabetic waiting to happen. Crazy. But again, you know, that light, fluffy example, but you get the point. Sin knows no bounds because it wants to feed itself, feed itself. And we know once sin gives birth, what comes forth? Death, death. Physical and more importantly, spiritual death. You become spiritually dead to the ways of God when you are addicted to sin and its sinister deeds. Nothing good comes from sin unless one is ready to be broken by the Lord Jesus Christ and repent of their wicked ways. Amen. It's important to it's important to point out, you know. Again, it's just not this. We don't live in this environment where sin is not prevalent. You, you, you and I have to understand where opportunity presents itself and meets with temptation. That's where sin is birthed. You know, if you don't have a good, close, tight relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, whatever you're tempted by from the wickedness of your own heart, when that temptation meets up with the opportunity it's so easy to go into that place. And that's why you have to have the new person of Jesus Christ on all the time. You have to be girded with the armor of God. You have to have the mind of Christ, meaning you're in the word. You have to know the word. And we'll speak about this later on in the message, but it's so important. It's so important. All right. Acts chapter 12, verse 2. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. I mean, this is pretty straightforward. Uh, you don't got to really figure it out here. Uh, somebody got killed, and it wasn't Herod. It was by his order. And James, the brother of John, was killed. This was a new turning point within the history of the early church. Of the 12 who followed Jesus, James was the first to be martyred. Now, James was not the first believer to be killed for his faithfulness to Jesus. We know in Acts 7, it talked about Stephen, and Stephen was killed. He was martyred for his faith. But the death of James was significant because it shattered the idea that the 12 disciples, excuse me, enjoyed a unique divine protection that other believers didn't. Basically, it's just saying, because they were in that circle of the 12, oh, you can't touch me. I was close with Jesus, so I'm good. I'm protected. I'm not going to get hit up. Nope, that wasn't the case. Many of them died and they got martyred. You know, Peter crucified upside down. I mean, they all pretty much died by the hand of the sword in bloodshed. James, I'm speaking of James here. James, the brother of John, in particular, one may have thought he would have been protected because he was in the inner circle of Jesus and he experienced many things that others didn't. So there were the 12 disciples, but then there was James, John and Peter. This was like kind of the I don't want to see a click, but these were these were the men that the Lord chose to 
just he kept closer to them. He revealed certain things to them that others did not get to experience. Uh, James experienced the transfiguration of Jesus Christ on the mount. Jesus, he, he witnessed Jesus's ascension to heaven and many other things that others didn't. And so from those examples, one could come to the conclusion that, well, you know, he's protected. He's, he's, he's in that inner fold of the disciples. But see, Jesus never promised special protection for even his closest followers. Yet he warned them to be ready for persecution. You can read about all that because I'm not going to go through all those verses right now. But in Matthew 10, 10, Chen, Chen, Matthew 10, verses 16 through 26, it speaks specifically about this of what Jesus talks about. The application for us this morning is for us believers today, just like back then, because it is a fallen world, because it is a, a world that is riddled with sin, apart from the, the omnipotence of God and the fact of him being slow to, to have judgment, us, apart from Christians, this is a godless world. God will have favor on who he seems to have favor upon. But apart from that, this is a godless world. You and I are going to face persecution. And there are many forms, right? I think in Western culture, it's a lot different from the up close and personal persecution that many Christian brothers and sisters face in you know the, the Eastern part of the world in the Middle East. But I think for us here, I think... It could be physical, but many times it could be emotional persecution. It could be psychological persecution. It could be social persecution. I mean, the list goes on. And the persecution, it takes on many shapes and forms. But here is the glorious promise. The promise is that our souls won't be harmed. So you have to understand, because of the, the fallen nature of Adam and Eve, they, they allowed sin, they brought sin into the world. Now, every person that's ever been born since them, and you can trace the lineage back, we're all from them. There's no, you know, the science, science has already proven that, you know, for those who don't believe it, we all come from that line. We're all, we all have that nature that's just bent towards our own way, and that's a sinful nature. We have to die. Unfortunately, we have to die physically. But Psalm 121 verse 7 tells us, The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. To preserve something is to keep it, to make sure it doesn't go bad. It doesn't go rotten. It doesn't go stale. It's fresh, right? Well, not maybe not the preservatives we find on the shelf. It's pretty nasty, the stuff that we put in our bodies. You don't know how to pronounce it. You're not supposed to put it in your body. I'm putting all that stuff in my body. It's like, oh, crazy. But this idea, spiritually speaking, the Lord will preserve us from evil. He will preserve our souls. That doesn't mean that our bodies aren't going to get battered up and bruised and beat up. And you might lose a leg. You might lose an arm. Who knows? You know, you might get colon cancer. You might get cystic fibrosis. I mean, there's all kinds of things that can happen to you physically, but spiritually your soul will be preserved. But this is, this is a reservation and this is a promise for the children of God, the true children of God who have called Jesus Christ, their only means of acceptance to a holy God, the father. That's who this is for. This is not for those who are they don't call upon the name of Jesus Christ. They call upon God, but the Bible's clear. You have to go through Jesus Christ to get to the Father. There's no other way. If you don't utter the name of Jesus Christ, if you don't hold the name of Jesus Christ as the highest regard in your heart of hearts, this promise is not for you. And that's why we always stress the importance every week. Make the decision. Don't make the decision because you got some man up here telling you to. You go before the Lord and you allow the Lord to reveal to you why you need to make this decision. It has eternal consequences. My job is just to be a witness. What you do with it is what you do with it, you know. But we are supposed to share who Christ is and allow the Holy Spirit to convict hearts, to move them to repentance. Amen. Amen. All right. 
Let's see. Remember back in Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 40, John and James came to Jesus asking him to be his top two followers. There was this whole debate. Who's going to be the greatest? I want to be the greatest. I'm going to be the greatest. I'm going to serve you, Lord. I'm going to be the greatest. Me and my, me and my bro, we're good to go. We're your men. Oh, whew, did they know what they were getting themselves into? This is crazy. Jesus replied, you do not know what you ask. Can you drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? See, he was speaking prophetically about his death, about him going to the cross and dying the most wicked, vile death that any person has ever died in the history of mankind. And they replied, yes, yes, Lord, we can drink of the cup that you drink of. We can be baptized with the baptism that you'll be baptized with, not knowing what they were saying. Then Jesus promised them, then you will indeed drink the cup that I drink and you will be baptized with the baptism that I will take. See, again, this was speaking of the martyrdom of Jesus. Well, it was speaking of the martyrdom of of, of, uh, of James. Though John himself wasn't martyred, but many attempts were made upon his life. See, this is interesting because we, we kind of we're the same way. We're like. And we I was talking with the gentleman at the at the men's breakfast yesterday morning. And, you know, we're, we're, we're it's definitely on my heart that the, I, I sense the Lord is wanting to raise up other men, you know, and I don't know. I don't care if it's younger men, older men. But you know what? I, sh I, I can't be the only person in here preaching and teaching. I can be the main preaching and teaching pastor, but there needs to be other people because God is going to raise up godly men. And this whole thing is a trip because people will be like, I just got baptized. I'm serving the Lord. I want, I'm, I'm, I want to be a pastor. <laughs> Do you understand? This is the easiest part right here. This is the easiest part. I'm not saying anybody can get up here and do this, but it, you know, God will use, he, he used, you know, a donkey to speak. He says the rocks will cry out if we don't worship him. He says he uses the foolish thing of preaching to get across his message to the world. So this is the easy part. And what I was explaining to the men, because this is what the Lord has shown me time and time again. I'm not, I'm not belittling the preaching. It's important. But this is not, this is the tip of the iceberg. The heart of the matter is getting involved in people's lives, rolling up your sleeves and getting dirty. If you're not, if I'm not doing life with the people of this church, I'm not worthy of being the pastor of this church because it doesn't make sense. It's just somebody getting up here talking. Who wants to hear some fool talking? And that's all you're doing is talking. You're not involved in my life. You don't care about, you're not concerned about my well-being. You're not, you're not. I don't kick it with you. I have no relationship with you outside of a Sunday service for an hour and a half. You see, there's so much more that goes into all this than just this little bit. And some people, they, they struggle with, oh, man, I, I got to study for 10 hours a week. and I got to come up with the message and I got to pray. And I mean, you know, that's like a whole lot for people. You should be grateful that you got that time to spend with the Lord. You know, the cook always eats the best. You know that, right? Because the cook has got the recipe. The cook is the one in there doing this and doing that. And the Lord speaks to you in a unique way that he may not speak to other people, though other people will be richly blessed by it. You see, and I share this because this is the whole point with James and John. What they were asking for, they didn't understand. You asked for this. This is going to cost you your life, homie. <laughs> you're going to die by the hand of the sword. You're talking about you want to be the best of the best. You want to be right next to me. It's like, yeah, it's a good thing to want, but understand, count the cost. What person tries to build up this and that and doesn't count the cost of what it's going to take? You know, you see, and that, that is heavy. It's heavy. It's not to be scared, but it, it's, it's to, it's to have, be sober about, you know, what we engage with, you know? Oh, it's crazy. It's a trip. It is a trip. Okay. With the sword. Normally, this meant that the individual was beheaded. See, this wasn't just, I'm going to just stick you one time or stick you two times. 
This is, I'm going to cut your dome off, bro. Like, you, I don't know if they used the guillotine. I don't know if you had to get on his knees, your head roll in the basket, you know, or what. But, I mean, the man's head got cut off. It might, you know, it might have been quick and painless. Maybe being stuck in the side would suck more because you can feel it and, you know, you have to bleed out. And, I mean, you know, I, it, it was a gruesome death. But in any event, this man was beheaded. This is a side note, but this is very important. A story from Clement of Alexandria said that a soldier directed to guard James was so affected by his witness that this soldier was actually, he declared himself a Christian and he was willing to die alongside James. A soldier that was meant to guard him. So obviously he wasn't a Christian, had no relationship to the true and living God. But, you know, James, he's real about it. He's like, I'm an OG. I'm going to go out. I'm going to go out like a soldier. I'm going to go out sharing the love of Christ. He's sharing, not in his own strength, in the strength of the Holy Spirit. This soldier calls himself a Christian, and he's willing to die the same kind of death, even for this man or for the Lord Jesus, but alongside James. The application for this is like James who was like Jesus. Remember, it's all about Christ. Our witness should speak to others about Jesus Christ, even unto death. Even unto death. When we die, we should be those who are remembered for always pointing others to Jesus Christ. Amen? How do you want to be remembered? What do you want your legacy to be? Do you want it to be... You made a whole lot of money. Do you want it to be, I don't know, you were good at, I don't know, what are, what are the new things everybody's doing? Racket, I don't know, right, whatever, whatever it is. Huh, what'd you say? What'd you say? Botox. Botox, you, you were good at Botox and you gave everybody big old fat lips and you know what I mean? You made a lot of money off plastic surgery. You were good at that. Or do you want to be remembered as... And this was, you know, he or she was a was a was a loving person who truly loved Jesus Christ with all their hearts, and they were a warm person, and they, and they always had the joy of the Lord. They always pointed me to Christ. When I had hard times, when I had bad times, when I had trials, they would come alongside me and encourage me, and and and, and encourage me to be in prayer and to be in God's word. And and even when you know you go through hard times and trials, and maybe your your husband or your wife pass away, or your father or your mother pass away, and it's you know because death is the equalizer. Yeah, that's the hardest thing. You go through all the hard things you go through, but death is the final blow that really, if you're not rooted in Christ, it's going to take you out. But as a Christian, you and I should be able to go through death or experience death of a loved one. And yes, we're going to grieve and we're going to go through our season of that. But there should be a countenance about ourselves. There, there should be some kind of resolve that's not there in non-believers because we have the rock of Christ to hold on to. We have the promise of eternal glory, especially if our loved one who passes is a believer, you know, I've been to memorials where it's more of a celebration than everybody having a pit party because they know they went home, you know, and, and I want to go home too, you know, and, and I will I will be with them there. Maybe we're not going to have the same relationship, but we're all going to be children of the true and living God, and they know that they're at peace. And so, again, the question is, how do you want to be remembered? Look at how James was remembered. He was remembered as going out like a soldier, a soldier for Christ. All right, let's go ahead and look at Verses three and four. And it says, And when he saw that it pleased, speaking of Herod, the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was due, excuse me, this was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intend, intending that after the Passover to bring him out to the people. Herod, man. I mean, this man was, he was on a mission, you know, he was on a mission as many are that hate the Lord or are in opposition to God. He was not done. This man was on a rampage and it wasn't enough that he had already had James killed. He also had Peter arrested. Again, his decisions were all based on power, position and popularity because he saw that it pleased the people. His popularity increased and this is what drove him to imprison Peter. The application for us today in this is we cannot allow ourselves to seek 
immediate gratification with no concern for long-term consequences. Now, that sounds like a mouthful, but it's so important. We can't allow immediate gratification, what, we, what we're seeking in the moment, we can't allow that to cloud our vision when we have no concern of the long-term consequences. You see, many people live like this today, even Christians within the church. They only care about what they want now. It's like my four and a half year old son. It's what I, it's, well, it's like me, <laughs> what I want now. I want this now. But, but, but we have to understand, we have to, we have to be those that, that consider and count the cost. Some of, some of us will stop at nothing to get it with no care of the long-term consequences. But as children of God, we need to seek the Lord and use discernment to make choices. Not everything that looks good is good. Remember, Satan is a deceiver. He comes as an angel of light. Lucifer, before he was Satan, the most beautiful of all angels, and how corrupt and wicked was this, this created being's heart. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8 tell us, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from his flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And so, again, the long-term ramifications of this decision that I'm making, is it the right thing for me to do? Should I go into business with this person when I know they're super corrupt and they go to Vegas and they gamble away most of their earnings and they're living a debaucherous lifestyle, but I'm a Christian and I'm using the excuse I'm trying to convert them. Well, first of all, homie, you're wrong because you're not converting anybody. Second of all, you shouldn't be going into business with someone that you know is not living a, li a right lifestyle or, you know, whatever. We're shacking up. We're doing this and that. We're not married, but I'm going to marry this person. You got to count the cost. Do you want to be blessed by the Lord? Wait. Just wait, you know, or do what you got to do and get married. And so you could do what you got to do. But, you know, again, the long term consequences do we consider before we go plunge ahead into the things that we want immediate gratification of. The text goes on to say, this happened during the time of unleavened bread. Now, there are several reasons for delaying Peter's execution. The first one is Herod didn't want to rock the boat with the Jews who observed the Passover. There were, there were many Jews there, and he didn't want to cause, uh, you know, a bunch of uh, tension to ensue. The second was, again, he wanted to wait for this pilgrim, for the pilgrim Jews that came from different places of the world to go home in fear of a riot. This could have well caused a riot, and he didn't want that on his hands. The third was Herod wanted to wait until he had the full attention of the Jewish population, probably to make it crystal clear this is what's going on, and again, to put fear in these people. But he wanted to wait until all the others had left and gone about back home. Peter was then watched over four squads of soldiers. What does this mean? Well, this was done as a preventative measure for any extreme criminal, someone who was seen as a major threat. Just picture it today as like in prison, like lockdown. Like when you're on lockdown, that's it. Ain't nobody coming out of your celly. That's it. You know what I mean? You got you're just watched. It's not, you have no way of moving around. Back then they couldn't put you on lockdown in a cell like that. That would be too effective, but this is the matter. So if I was Peter, I'd literally have one uh, soldier in front of me, one in my back, one on my right, and uh, one on my left. And that's how it worked. That was the four squad of soldiers. So it's like four men compared to one, you ain't going nowhere unless you're, you know, superhuman. Um, you know, when resting, two soldiers would be chained to him and two others would keep watch. And this was to prevent this prisoner from getting away and escaping or doing anything drastic that uh, the people that were keeping him in prison would want them to do. But as we'll see next week, there's actually going to be a supernatural act that God does and Peter's going to fly away. All right, last verse, Acts chapter 12, verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. We see that Peter was kept in prison. 
Peter was kept in prison, but the church prayed earnestly for him. Herod had his soldiers and he had his prisons, but the church had the power of prayer. Peter was kept in prison, but the church was free to pray. And honestly, knowing Peter, I don't think he was sitting in the cell crying and having a sob story. Oh, what was me? I'm in prison. I can't get out. I got four men around me. I believe he was praying too. I believe he was praying too for the livelihood of himself and the other believers. When all the other gates are shut and locked for the followers of Christ, the gates of heaven are wide open. Humanly speaking, everything looks like it's just you're boxed in. There's no way out. There's no way I can make sense of this. It's, there's, it's just doom and gloom. I don't understand it. I don't see it. But you got prayer. You have access to the true and living God. The application is despite whatever we go through, communication with God should always be our first option, not our last resort. That's the worst thing we could do. We run to everybody else. <laughs> you know, I struggle with this. Going through all this nonsense in my mind, trying to figure it out, trying to analyze it, trying to do this and that. Man, get on your knees and pray. Quit acting like a clown. Pray to the true and living God who can break through that situation in a heartbeat. But many times we don't do that. <laughs> we have to ask ourselves the hard question. When do we reach out to God? Because the reality is many times we do our own thing, our own way, only to come before our Lord when things don't work out. We made a hash of it. We just went off and I got my own ideas. I'm going to do it this way. <laughs> Mess it up and then we go to him. When in fact, the first thing we should do, the first thing we should do when we roll out of bed is get on our knees, thanking him, asking him for his will to be revealed for us this day. You see, many times we come up with our own plan, our own agenda, our own schedule. We don't even stop to ask the Lord, what would you have me to do today? What is your purpose for my life today? What are your plans for me? You see, because that takes submission. That's submission. That's obedience. That's humbling yourself. Not I, X, Y, and Z, I'm doing it. No concern, no care for what the Lord wants to do in your life. And then look at, oh, well, I got a little bit of free time. Maybe I, you know, it's like, no, we have to be those that are like, Lord, you have all of me. Because he wants all or none. Amen. He wants all or none. That's just the truth. You cannot hold back some and think that he's going to do for you what he would do for you if you gave all of yourself to him. One's life should be in constant communion with God, not isolated moments in time. You see that whole thing that we do at the end of service or after the message when we have the communion, the cracker and the, and the juice, what that symbolizes is the relationship, right? The relationship, the intimate relationship that you have with the Lord, that needs to be a lifestyle in you and in me. It's not enough several times a week or, you know, an hour and a half during the day, but it should be a constant, consistent thing. You see, the early church understood this. With one of their leaders recently killed and another thrown into prison, they were quick to pray. The text goes on to say, constant prayer was offered up to God on Peter's behalf. The word constant is the idea of earnest. Literally picture someone stretching out all they can for something. It comes from the word, I'm going to butcher this for sure, ectonos, which is a medical term meaning to stretch a muscle to its limits. This is literally what earnest prayer is doing. Application as the worship team comes up and I close uh, in the next few moments. Much of our prayers are powerless because they lack earnestness. Too much we pray with an attitude of wanting God to care for the things that we should earnestly care for. And we bring it to him. But we, we don't even have a heart 
to, to care for these things. We want God to care for them, but we should have a brokenness and we should have a, a burden and a desire for these things to happen in our lives or one another's. But we also need to understand that earnest prayer has no power in persuading God. You're not going to persuade the Lord. It's not about that. But what earnest prayer does is it demonstrates that your hearts and mind care passionately about the things that God cares about. This fulfills Jesus's promise found in John chapter 15, verse 17. It says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. You know, people want to throw that verse around with no context. That means that the things you ask for are going to be in line with what God would have you to do. So it's not saying I want a, I want a 2020 Corvette because I'm abiding in you, Lord. It's not about that. I mean, he could care less about the Corvette. He may bless it with you anyways, but it's not about that. It's about you're not going to ask for dumb stuff. You're going to ask for the stuff that's in line with God's will for your life and for the other people in your life. You get what I'm saying? You're going to be you're going to be guided by the Holy Spirit. And that's what it means. And it'll be done for you. And you can rest assured in that. It's also important to point out that our prayers are offered to God. And you, you can play whenever you want. I love when you play. Because it just, I don't know, it just, you know, gives it that feel. This may seem obvious that they pray to God, but many times prayer doesn't even, isn't even heard because we don't even know who we're praying to. If we don't have a pure line to the true and living God, it isn't going to make a difference how much we pray, we're not going to be heard. That's why people can pray to Confucius and Buddha and all these different people. And people can pray to the saints and pray to Mary. It's not, it's not about that. You have to have a connection with the true and living God. A great way to pray is to pray scriptures. What I mean by this is memorize scriptures, recite scriptures to the Lord when you pray. Jesus himself did this when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. It was all the word of God. You know, I'm with my son and I'm like, you know, before he goes to bed, creating me a clean heart, renewing me a right spirit. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me beneath the shadow of your wings. You know, all these things. Perfect love casts out all fear. I mean, he who lives in me is greater than he who lives in the world. I don't know if I said that already, but the point is, what better way to pray than to pray scripture? I mean, the, the word of God, it's living and active. Whenever you find yourself in a situation where you don't know what to do and you don't even know how to pray, obviously the unction of the spirit is going to, you know, you'll be moaning and groaning, whatever. But in words, you can use the scripture. That's what they're there for. It's a great way to pray and have the peace of God cover you. I'll leave you with this verse, James chapter 5, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And this is what went on with the early church. Their brother was in trouble. It was hard. Someone died, another person in prison, and they prayed. But the earnest, righteous prayer of an upright person is very powerful. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you again for just this word of yours that's true and living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Thank you for this account that it shows us we're going to face opposition as believers in Christ, but we don't have to fret. We don't have to run away. We don't have to hide. We serve the true and living God. We serve the Most High. In Jesus Christ's name, we are to always just lift up our prayer request to you. We're supposed to intercede for our brothers and sisters in faith that you'll answer according to your will and in your time. And we know that earnest prayer, a prayer that is heartfelt, that's truly seeking your will, you'll always respond to. Maybe not in our time, maybe not in the way we think you should, but you're going to do it in a perfect way. And so, Father, I pray that you would hear our prayers this morning as we just want to know you more. We want to sense your presence. We want to have your direction. We need your vision, your wisdom, direction, your guidance. Father, we need these things on a moment-to-moment -moment basis so we know how to walk through this life and how we can be effective as followers of Christ in a fallen world. Father, as we partake in communion, may we not trample overfoot the blood of Jesus Christ and act as it's something that's unclean. But may we allow you to examine our own hearts. May we examine our hearts and bring before you the things 
that we need to do business with you with. Father, may you convict hearts. May you encourage hearts. May you point us in the right direction. Father, may we not take it in vain, but may we have a deeper, richer understanding of who you are through this act that we do call communion. Father, again, we thank you for the worship and praise that you allow us to give to you. May it be a sweet aroma to you. Father, we thank you and love you. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.